This is Fully Vested, a weekly-ish podcast where Jason Rowley and Graham Peck discuss technology and venture capital investing. This week, we discuss how to go about raising a venture capital funding round. This show was recorded on August 30th. You can learn more at fullyvested.co. You know, Graham, there's, um, what's that saying? There's that saying around um, art is, art is something, wait, art is nothing if it isn't for a little bit of suffering or you have to suffer for your art or whatever. Okay. I guess that would be a little bit uh, presumptuous to assume that what we're doing here is art, but I guess we are making stuff on the internet. Consider it creative. Yeah, and on the note of suffering... one of my most fun things that I do to get my creative juices to flow. Oh, Graham, I'm so sorry. I hate to be such a disappointment that this is, that this is the thing. Um, but, uh, but Graham, today, today I'm, I'm suffering for my art. One, there's a, uh, there's a gentleman in the background uh, who is uh, 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 dropping uh, his weights, uh, as he typically does, approximately, at approximately around uh, 7... 45 uh, every evening, um, which is great audio for our listeners. And then um, independently, uh, it is it is very hot in my apartment because I just got back from an undisclosed location where I was camped out in the woods for five days, uh, and I just got back. It's very hot hey, in my apartment. I turned off the you AC. Could've, you could have left the AC on just a tiny bit for your, your plants. No, my plants kind of liked it. Oh, there you go. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know. I can't ever hear the uh, the guy who drops the weights. Uh, well, that's but good. I could in, in your old place. Not to give up too much opsec, but in your old place. Oh no, I'll, I'll tell I you could, where the I'll, I'll tell you where the old place was. It was uh, at uh, the corner of Lake and Wells, which is above Tower. What was it? Tower thirty four, I think it is. Which which at least for a long time was the busiest railroad intersection in the world because it was the intersection of a bunch of different L lines. And what I was just going to say was, sometimes in the background I could hear the L when we were recording. Hmm. I think our wonderful editor was always able to get that out, though. He did. They did. I don't want to compromise the identity. Oh yeah. Of our of our. There's probably more than one person who identifies as a male and edits podcasts. Boy, this is a really interesting uh, open for us, isn't it? All right, Graham. Uh, let's <laughs> let's get down. To, let's get down to business. So, uh, yeah. What, what what are we talking about? All today? right. So, this, so this last, is a fun question. Yeah, yeah. So, let, you know, Graham, I, I think that that one thing that I'm really excited to do on on fully vested, at least for the next few episodes, is um, is sort of like go back and and think about well, what are the what are the questions that we have not asked in our 30-odd episodes of, of recording and really sort of getting back to basics, right? Because, you know, you and I, and I suppose we should make our introductions in a second, but, you know, you, you and I have spent a decent number of years uh, working in and around the startup and technology and venture capital ecosystem, uh, however you want to phrase it. And, you know, a lot of the things that you and I have been talking about on the show, uh, I think that we've made the assumption that, Either our listeners know a lot about what we're talking about, uh, but I think more, perhaps more damning is that you and I have made a lot of assumptions that uh, e- each of us, um, respectively, know what we're talking about. Um, and so, you know, last last episode we talked about well, what exactly is a startup uh, and what is not a startup. And so, I think that um, this this uh, this episode is is going to be more to- more focused around like 
the question of, you know, how to raise a venture capital round. What are some of the questions that go into that? Uh, what are the steps involved um, and stuff like that? And Graham, I'm very excited for this particular episode because I get to turn the tables on you and I get to have you be the interview subject for once. Ooh, yeah, I feel like normally I ask you a lot of questions and get obviously great, uh, great responses while giving my input. So yeah, I'm excited for... Uh, the script to be flipped, as they say. All right. Well, uh, I should uh, probably introduce myself, and uh, then you can go. Uh, my name is Jason Rowley. I am the U.S. content lead for a uh, new product, a new research product called Speed Edge. It is a uh, new product uh, spun out of a Japanese data and uh, financial media company called Usabase. U z a b a s e. Um, you can find more about Speed Edge at sp edge.com. Uh, when I don't do that, I'm uh, volunteering and um, helping out a couple of startup friends do some stuff in startup land. Graham, who are you? Yeah, my name is Graham Peck. I'm a venture partner at St. Louis-based VC Cultivation Capital. I'm lucky enough to be a member of our technology team. We invest in seed and series A stage B2B SaaS companies. Uh, we are uh, We've been around as a firm since 2012. Uh, that's probably most relevant there. Uh, I also help my family uh, with angel investing. And just actually about a week or two ago, uh, as we record now, um, we uh, crossed the 10-year mark since we had written our first kind of angel venture micro PE check. Yeah, congrats. It's actually a thank you. Yeah, it was a milestone. I didn't really mark it with anything. I meant to text our internal investment committee some updates and thank them. I didn't do that. I still need to go back and do it now that it's a couple weeks after. But uh, yeah, that uh, that's a lot of fun. And actually recently, uh, just within the last few months, I've become a uh, direct angel myself. So oh, that's kind of my, even better. Yeah, that's kind of my investing track record. Um, and then, uh, yeah, outside of that, I'm also a partner in a couple of different technology companies that help uh, – small or large businesses to build their tech or their teams that build their tech and also a cybersecurity platform that helps people with their compliance needs against different frameworks. So, Well, that's cool. Uh, Graham, I'm probably, uh, perhaps not tonight, but uh, definitely some point in the near future, maybe talking to you about that uh, tech uh, slash tech building aspect of what you do for a fun side project of mine. Uh, that Anytime. Yeah, that I'll uh, uh, just leave as an absolute uh, mystery for 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 our dear listeners. Um, okay, so so Graham, how to raise a venture capital round? Um, I think that there are, I don't know. I stretch this into ten easy steps. Um, yeah, and so just to be clear, we're going to tell this from the company's side ostensibly, right? Yes, so this for sure. Is, if you are a company and you want to go get, uh, this could apply to angels, but I would say most of what we've got here is probably like targeted seed. at you're going to go raise a seed A or other lettered round from institutional VCs, right? Yeah, to Fol- give folks who've accepted money the, from folks who've accepted money from uh, limited partners and they outside manage limited partners professionally. Yeah, well, professionally with asterisks, uh, there's a lot. Anybody can be a VC these days, apparently. But um, <laughs> good gig if you can get it. Good gig if you can get it. Okay, so Graham, um, in okay, well, also before we get started, uh, 
Graham and I usually have this uh, long, long set of disclosures at the beginning, but uh, in, in this sort of case, they hold especially true. Um, neither Graham or I are uh, investment advisors. We're not securities lawyers. We're not lawyers of any kind. Um, we are just, uh, we're also not tax advisors. We don't do anything regarding, uh, I don't know, uh, estate planning, any of the other sort of important things that uh, might go into uh, decision making about, um, you know, whether or not you might want to go out and raise some venture capital for the thing you're working on. Um, so, uh, anything that we say is just our opinions here. Uh, that said, uh, if you have any, if you have a startup yourself, I'm sure Graham and I are willing to at least give you a chat about it. Uh, don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we'll, and we'll see if there's a way to, uh, to be helpful. Okay. So Graham, uh, in, uh, in 10, 10 steps, you can feel free to interrupt me at any time, but, uh, I, I kind of, kind of want to go through these relatively quickly so I can uh, get to the, uh, some of the questions. Um, yeah, you know, Graham. I think that the the first step, uh, step zero or step one, depending on if you're a software engineer or a project manager or not, is uh, determine if the business you're working on is in fact a startup. We talked about that last time, right? And if you have any questions about whether it is or isn't, refer to our prior episode. Also, if you have questions about what you're working on is uh, is or is not a startup, chances are it's probably not a startup. That's my hot take. Um, step two. You should decide how much of the company you're willing to sell in this round uh, vis-a-vis the amount of money you need to raise. And this will give you some rough numbers around target valuation. Does that sound like a good step, too? Yeah, it definitely does. Although, you know, one quick note that I was going to add on that as I kind of read through it in my preparation is um, sometimes you may be willing to sell one percentage and you may need to raise, you may think you need to raise another amount of money. So those things don't always line up. So I think it's a combination of those things that eventually determine how much, uh, how much of the company you sell and at what valuation in terms. Yeah, well, you know, you get to throw a throw an offering at the market and see what sticks, right? Like if you Absolutely. Yeah, if you say, "Oh, I want to sell 1% of my company for uh, you know, $20 million and uh, we're pre-product, uh, you know, you you're probably going to have a really hard time gaining gaining traction on that particular deal. Um somewhere somewhere along the line, uh, either your expectations of how much money you need to raise or want to raise and how much of your company you want to give away slash sell, rather, it's not giving it away, uh, at some point you'll reach some equilibrium that makes sense for both um, yourself as an entrepreneur and the investors uh, from whom you want to raise money. Um, yep. Okay, uh, Graham, I think number three is you should probably prepare some flavor of presentation. And this in itself is probably another start, you know, this is another fully vested episode about what to I include. Think we might have talked about this uh, a little bit once. We did an episode on what to include in a deck, or we at least talked did about we? doing that episode. If we didn't, we should, and that's a good next question to answer. Anyways, I thought we did. Anyways, so there's there's instances of companies raising money without ever, um, you know, having a sort of a PowerPoint or keynote or I don't know whatever the cool kids are using these days. Uh, Google Google Slides, Prezi, it uh, doesn't matter. Um, I know that there's there's a lot of instances of folks raising money without a slide deck. I think one of the more famous examples is Twilio, uh, which raised its seed round, and I also believe its its subsequent uh, Series A round, um, at least basically on a demo of the Twilio product. 
Um, oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, that's a fun fact. But you know, in most cases, you're probably going to want to have you know some some uh, supporting documentation, uh, you know, some sort of a presentation around uh, what you're doing, how far you've gotten, um, who's working on the problem, uh, you know, what your strategy for getting more market share or any market share is, all, all that good stuff. Uh, that that would typically go in some sort of a fundraising deck. What's the total addressable market size? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very common question uh, investors are going to ask. Yeah, and and all the numbers are made up. Prove to me that it's a big enough swimming pool for me to get interested. Yeah, yeah. All all you got to, pro pro tip uh, entrepreneurs, all you got to do is uh, find some way to say that you're entering like a, uh, you know, like a, uh, uh, what, what, what's, what's, what's an attractive market size for you, Graham? Is it, well, I don't know. I would say it used to be like a billion or more, but that's getting a little small these days, unfortunately. Well, uh, fortunately to- or unfortunately. So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people would probably say that the common threshold has probably moved from a billion TAM to uh, 10 billion TAM. I mean, you can look at that differently as like, what's your actual market you're going to go after? And that should probably be a much smaller subset of that. But, the total market you eventually see yourself going after should probably be at least somewhere in the one to ten billion range, maybe higher, depending upon who you want to be your investors and what you expect to be your kind of capital strategy moving forward. Yeah, and or and or you're getting into like a brand new technological field, you know, at, at sort of ground zero, right? So if oh yeah, and then it obviously wouldn't have as much of an addressable or or, or a uh, like any kind of market. any yeah. kind of proven market. You know, if you were correct. You know, eight years ago, saying, "Oh, I want to use deep learning to uh, index uh, speech for speech analytics or whatever." You know, it'd be like, "Cool, there's uh, what Google might be working on that in one of their uh, AI labs or whatever." But uh, heck, if anybody else knows exactly how big that market's going to be, and it ended up being uh, pretty big. Um, anyways, so after that, uh, you know, step four. This is where I sort of have a little bit of a, a prescription, if you will, which is like, you know, identify investors who are a good fit for your company based on stage, industry, strategy, et cetera, right? So, you know, you're probably not going to want to go to the uh, SoftBank Vision Fund if you are raising your first, uh, you know, $200,000 to get you and your two other co founders through the first year of operation so that you can uh, build an MVP and get some traction, right? So, you know, stage matters. Um, industry, you know, if you're, uh, spe- if you're specializing in the pharmaceutical industry, you're probably not going to want to go to somebody who um, exclusively invests in uh, enterprise SaaS, for example. Um, Although I get a lot of those pitches. You know, again, we, pri- we don't invest exclusively in enterprise SaaS. We'll do SMB kind of SaaS as well, but we invest nearly exclusively in SaaS businesses. We do have a sister fund that does healthcare innovation and life sciences and another sis- sister fund that does ag tech and food science. And I get a shockingly high number of pitch decks because uh, people just associate us with them, which is great. And I, of course, forward those on to my appropriate colleagues. Got it. Um... Anyway, so then here comes a little bit of a prescription, right? Which is, you know, once you identify a set of investors, like, then you probably want to go about categorizing them in terms of like the quality of fit, right? Are they a merely good fit? Are they a better fit? Or are they like a best fit? Or, or, you know, the best way to think about a best fit is like, you know, who's your dream team of investors that you'd like to have on board, uh, on board your cap table? 
which leads me into step five, which is uh, you know reach out to and pitch your good fit investors first to get practice and iterate on your pitch, and then move on to better fit and best fit investors. Following that, you know, as interest builds in the round, determine who you want uh, on your cap table and how much room you want to allocate for them. And then uh, as hopefully the term sheets start rolling in, you're probably going to want to review those with your relevant legal counsel, co-founders, board members, advisors, um, anybody else who's a key decision maker, um, either contractually or um, through your sort of personal network of trust. Uh, to get their opinions on what's going on, that could include your significant other. Oh, absolutely! Like if you, yeah, and, I mean, anyone who's important to you as you make those huge decisions, right? And and I'm I'm sure. I mean, at least in in many cases, even if um, even if those deals come come uh, you know burdened with some sort of a non disclosure agreement, which uh, don't really know why they would. Um, the you know there's oftentimes carve outs for you know discussing things with uh, counsel or. Um, certainly right. a spouse or stuff like that, because um, you know these, these are uh, you know these are life changing decisions, right? especially if you're raising your first round of venture capital. Um, you know, once you raise that first round, you are in many ways contractually obligated to stay with that venture until uh, it reaches its logical conclusion, whether that's a uh, uh, sale by way of acquisition or exit via public markets or, uh, God forbid, a bankruptcy or uh, yeah, crash other, and burn. Yeah, yeah. Um, where do we where do we leave off? Okay, then you're going to want to select offers based on the best terms and or value added. The reason why I added that little parenthetical, Graham, is that sometimes your most value added investors are going to give you a uh, perhaps a slightly lower valuation or slightly more uh, strenuous terms than your than others might. Um, mm-hmm. But if you really want them on board, if you think that they can add value, uh, and they've also demonstrated that they can add value. Uh, uh, in in ways you know leading up to the um, culmination of the financing round, uh, you know it, it might be worth uh, considering giving them some allocation in the deal. Um, after that, Graham, it's just uh, you know you pop the bottle of champagne, you send the wiring instructions, you issue the shares or notes, uh, you update your cap table in whatever cap table uh, hosting service you're using. Uh, and then uh, step ten is finally, uh, you know, you get back to work building the future because uh, at the end of the day, fundraising, um, whether founders like to admit to it or not, it's a full. It, it kind of turns into a full time job, and um, certainly your co founders or uh, senior employees, managers, executives will uh, they they've missed you over the weeks or months that you've been gone, uh, focusing primarily on fundraising, and uh, they'd love to have you back uh, back on the team full time. Uh, to focus on the the more important things in life, like how the heck you're going to actually uh, grow into the <laughs> grow into the growth projections that you may have made in your pitch deck. Right, you got to then put that venture capital money to work and uh, grow your business. All right, Graham. So, um, um, is there anything in that in that you know little tidy uh, you know t- ten weird tricks to go uh, raise a venture capital round? Is there anything in there that that uh, I might have missed or we might have missed? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, I think one of the things that you pointed out at the very beginning is really important, like determine if venture capital is is actually appropriate. Um, and I know that that's also going to be in the questions you ask me in a little well, that's bit. My, that's my first question. Uh, it, you know, is is determine if you're a venture backable business, because I think a lot of companies out there these days assume that they are. And uh, it's not that that's good or bad. 
But I think it, there's something, I don't know, inherently sexy or whatever you want to say about the venture capital industry. And that's great, um, but uh, it's not right for everyone. And it yeah, I mean, who, who doesn't want the who doesn't want the uh, the press headline saying that? Uh, oh my God, uh, you know, X Y Z group of entrepreneurs raised uh, ten million dollars to disrupt the bagels as a service market or whatever, right? Right, and maybe you do want that. But uh, that being said, you know, then as you pointed out, kind of further on in your steps, you do become beholden to those investors, and you have a fiduciary duty to them to ensure that ensure that you deliver. Um, or, or again, as you said, I think actually see the business through to its to its conclusion, whatever that might be. Uh, so I guess so you become kind of beholden to them and, you know, sure, you might be able to have a side project, but I think a lot of people who are entrepreneurs like to work on a multitude of things and you're really committing yourself to, um, you know, taking every waking breath and thinking about your business until, yeah. until it either blows up or blows up. Well, on that, on that note, <laughs> blows up or blows up could be a good title, um, on that note of you know working on a couple of different things at once, the best entrepreneurs that I know, and I know that this is this sounds like I'm about to start you know a tweet that it would go out on like VC Twitter and get like eight billion retweets or whatever, but you know the best entrepreneurs that I know, um, especially after they've raised some some venture funding, you know they they focus almost exclu- well basically exclusively on their business in terms of like actual day to day business dealings. Um, but if there was ever a side project or a pursuit that they will um, do outside of work that's still nominally work related, um, it might be you know especially if they've you know hit that sort of magical um, threshold of being an accredited investor or whatever whatever mm-hmm. you know they might go out and uh, start mentoring or start some angel investing on the side and and you know in most cases you know that works out really well. Um, for for both the entrepreneur who's doing the angel investing and advisory work because you know they get the opportunity to um, see what an even younger generation of of startups are working on and it gives them some yeah it gives them some ability to give back to the community which likely benefited them when they were at a similarly early stage as well oh I was going to say from a strictly selfish perspective it also gives them a little bit of you know market intelligence into what um, other entrepreneurs, perhaps in their sector, are are also working on. So it gives opportunities for future collaborations. Uh, you know, who knows down the road if things really uh, work out for um, either party. Opportunities for uh, partnerships or acquisitions. You know, there's there's all sorts of different ways that that can work out. Um, with, yeah, and I've even seen people be scouts for other funds, so they'll just yeah, be yeah. a deal deal sourcer for funds. But uh, they won't, you know, really work for the fund. But sometimes get a piece of the carry or a piece of the investment. Yeah, dollars. ways that ways that I haven't seen that work out quite so well are when folks sort of, you know, go out and start like a rolling fund, and they're now beholden to outside investors while also running their startup because they're sort of caught between two different pools of investors. Right on the one hand, they have limited partners in their rolling funds or you know private venture funds or whatever, and then. On the other side, they have investors who are uh, stakeholders in their startup, and it ends up kind of being a competition for time. And uh, it, yeah, I mean that that's one of the things that's we I don't think we've ever really addressed, but no. is actually a disclosure in a lot of at least real estate deals that I've seen is one of the things, oh, and probably venture capital as well, um, is that you're trusting the manager to 
to divide their time appropriately. And you could always argue infinitely that there was a better way that the manager of a real estate fund, of a venture fund, of whatever, could have allocated their time to potentially have yielded better results. Regardless of how good the results are, they theoretically could have been better if your time had been spent differently. Yeah, and it's it's usually So you're definitely trusting the entrepreneur uh, you know, to manage their and their team's time efficiently, and you're trusting the venture manager in which you invest in to manage their time sourcing deals and new capital in an appropriate way. Right. And it's usually framed in the manner of like a best faith effort. Of in, course. In either case, of course. right? That, that's how the disclosures, you know, cover cover all the bases. Yes. Right. Without without saying like you do not you 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 no longer have the freedom to go do some, you know, you no longer have the freedom to do some capitalism in the innovation economy. You know, you're stuck doing this one particular thing. Right. Anyways, Graham, so to that point about, you know, before we get into the questions that I actually have written down and shared with you before this uh before this recording commenced, you know, you, you touched on this thing about, you know, well, is a company venture backable? And, and, you know, we've talked about what's a startup and what's not a startup. Um, you know, I think that there's lots of obvious places to say where a company is not venture backable, right? Um, maybe they're not, uh, maybe they're not necessarily using a lot of technology that can benefit from, you know that can result in economies of scale. Uh, perhaps they're going after a market that's incredibly niche, um, which which could be mm-hmm. niche for a number of different reasons, including like, um, you know, for example, uh, uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll pick on my mom for a second. She's a small business owner. Uh, she runs a healthcare clinic. Um, I, I highly, I you know, I love my mom. I highly doubt that uh, she'd be successful in going out and raising, uh, you know, twenty twenty five million dollars or whatever to uh, scale. You know her her medical practice to uh, two two new, two two new branches in the Chicago land sure. area or whatever, right? Um, sure. You know, so what's what's some other other so so I guess if that's you know what's what's not venture backable, you know, what are some of the more um, ineffable or sort of like hard to pin down factors that make something venture backable from your from your experience and opinion? Yeah, I mean, obviously there has to be a need for cash up front, and that can be, you know, split a couple of different ways. Uh, although I guess arguably there may be some businesses that don't need the venture funding that they raise. But um, in general, I think the the primary ways in technology that I see money being spent are on product development, uh, on, you know, kind of sales and marketing. Uh, and, uh, well, I guess maybe that's two ways. Um, I think those are the main two ways that it seems like most businesses are spending their, their dry powder. And there's got to be a belief that you can go out and get more business more quickly by, by, you know, kind of pouring some, some gas on the fire, as they say. So, you know, a venture capital funding should be seen by most as an accelerant to help their, product get there faster or their sales and marketing efforts get there faster and get there faster by saying that I mean you know get more customers um, build your book of business more substantially than you could without that funding there are a lot of businesses that could get there eventually but they couldn't grow fast enough because they wouldn't have the resources to deploy to hire enough software developers um, and or enough sales or marketing people 
And, and there could be some other operational concerns. I guess that is the third, the third thing that I was originally thinking of, but that's not necessarily where you see a lot of venture dollars being spent, but there is sometimes a need for a handful of additional expansion and kind of a operational non-sales marketing, non-product capacity as well. Yeah. Like Customer you might, you might support, have to right. community management, depending on the business model, right? You might need more of those people to support your influx of customers then your cash flow supports at any given moment, but it pro- hopefully is headed in the direction that it makes sense financially. Yeah, depending on your type of business, you might need to acquire, uh, you know, a um, either a, a lease in a particular type of facility, or you know, acquire sure. a facility outright, etc. Et I, I get what you're saying on sure. that front, which which sort of you know. Uh, Segues nicely into sort of like the first first official question of this uh, of the show, which is, you know, what are from your from your experience or perspective, like what are some of the quote unquote right reasons for a company to go out and raise venture money, and are there any wrong reasons? Sure, um, you know, I think the right reasons are what we were just talking about. You understand, well, it depends on your stage, certainly. Um, but let's just imagine you were probably raising a series A and we can maybe back down to seed in a minute. But, um, but if you're raising a, 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 a lettered series, and I think those exact round details, depending on region and some other things matter a little less than they used to, cause they've gotten a little bit amorphous between the kind of the differences. In, oh, especially in between like what, whatever the difference between seed and series A is. Seed and A are, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but in any case, let's just imagine you're going to go raise a series A. Um, I think it's very likely that your investor would probably like to understand that you've got at least some traction of your product or service with a handful of customers. Probably depends a little bit on what your offering is. Uh, you could still be pre revenue, but you've got early pilots that are beginning to convert to revenue. But just speaking about revenue traction, at least the way that, that, I think about it, we would like to see that you've got a, a, a handful of customers and that you know how you got them, how much it costs you to get them, what they're worth over periods of time. So those might be metrics like CAC, cost of acquisition of customers, and LTV, lifetime value. Mm-hmm. And so it's important that you've got some understanding of those metrics. How do you go get more customers and how much will it cost to go get more customers and if you and what will those customers eventually be worth to your business and those numbers and the formulas to calculate them can change quite a bit over time but um, I think having an understanding of those things and then showing me where if you're going to invest a million dollars or ten million dollars whatever the numbers may be, how many more customers will that get your business based on your actual use of those funds? Again, broken down into a handful of categories because you're not just going to go pour that all, uh, you know, all on ad- advertising. Right. Although there is some interesting data that says something like 42% of all dollars deployed into venture capital, I think, end up getting spent on Google, Facebook, and a couple of other. Yeah, platforms. we talked about that Online during one of our uh, during our review of uh, Mary Meeker's annual gigantic deck about uh, venture capital. Yeah, trends. which we haven't done that in a couple of years. We should uh, circle back and do one of those the next time she puts that out. But indeed, anyway. <sighs> man. Okay, so so that all that yeah. all that all makes sense. So. So, so those are good reasons. 
it's I've got a business. I think there's more potential to scale it. I think I know who my customer, my targeted customers are, and I think there's more of them I can go get if I have more sales, marketing, advertising, and partnership dollars, mm-hmm. whatever's appropriate for your business, to go get them. And that probably looks like more sales and marketing people, content-driven strategies, some advertising, um, and probably, depending on your, your industry, probably some partnerships. Makes sense. Are so what about, some, what about some wrong reasons? Um, that's a good question. Money is free these yeah. days? <laughs> yeah, it seems like money is free, and I think that is probably the wrong reason, and that's kind of where my head initially went. Um, funding non-sustainable growth, you probably can't know, you know, if you make a good pitch deck, uh, you probably can't know that until after the fact that, that the outside funding went to non-sustainable growth. It depends on what your definition of sustainable growth is, but um, you put the money in and it doesn't come back out of the business. So, right, um, or you spend uh, you know you spend a bajillion dollars on uh, Facebook ads, and then you realize that uh, the only way you're going to grow is Facebook ads. Not to pick on Facebook uh, versus you know Google versus anything else, but. Um, you know, you might you might realize, well, hey, look, we we actually have failed to build the uh, the viral loop um, that would result in a word of mouth spread of of what we're working on. Uh, sure. You know, if you were counting on that as part of your business model, yeah, absolutely. Um, trying to think of other bad reasons to go out and raise money. Um, probably don't want to do it for the likes and retweets because that's a pretty bad reason to do anything. Well, yeah, and I think any business, well, most businesses that are just going after eyeball count anymore, uh, you know, that that kind of used to be a big deal, and I don't think that that's probably the right. Oh, I wasn't going right after eyeball. Off. I wasn't on that angle. I was more just like you know, founder ego satisfaction. Sure. Um, sure. Because again, at the end of the day, uh, you're you're the one strapping your you're you're the one lashing yourself to the. Mast of the ship, and and you'll go, you'll you'll either go down with it or uh, or or sail into the sunset. So, ooh, that was two analogies for death. Yikes! Oh, that's not what I meant. You know what I mean? Okay, fine. <laughs> well, sail you know, off into the sunset. Oh, that was a positive one. Yeah, right. You sail off into the sunset to uh, you know lands on you know not yet explored uh, lands of plenty, uh, new opportunity, uh, whatever. What, Graham? I'm not. I'm not good with the nautical with the nautical metaphors today, so we're going to move on. We're going to move on to the next one, which is that you know it it. So I think that that what we're getting at is that there's this set of themes that are universal around why a company might want to raise venture money. Right? It's mm-hmm. it's it's in service of at the extremely early stage turning nothing into something, and then mm-hmm. once that little switch is flipped, once you've gone zero to one. To borrow a Peter Thiel phrase, um, you you're then trying to make that something more of itself, right? Either mm-hmm. a bigger something, a deeper something, a you know a higher scale something, a more expansive something, whatever that is. Um, so you know, at different stages, you know, seed stage early stage, right? Series A, series B, you know, late stage. What are some of the traits that companies should be looking for in an investor? 
And feel free to yeah, break think, that down any way that you want. And I'll, I, I might chime in with my own thoughts, but. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a really important question. So if you're running a startup, what makes somebody the right investor? I mean, you know, I would say that a little bit of it is gut instinct, um, uh, but that's probably informed by a whole bunch of other things. So I think one of the things you're going to hear from almost every venture investor you talk to is that they provide more than just capital. Um, and I think that a lot of venture investors don't provide a whole lot more than capital. And I'm not meaning to rag on the industry that, you know, in which I work. Oh no, it's fair. It's, it's uh, a fair, fair, fair to rag on it. And, but I guess what I would say is, you know, to the extent that you can make that, um, you know, m- make sure that that's real, check that out. You know, I think one of the things that people talk about is like how many dollars are deployed per partner and mm-hmm. how many companies across all the portfolios that they've got does each is each partner responsible for. And I think that those are totally fair questions for a startup founder to ask a VC. Well, I'm going to I'm going like, to pause you on that. Sure. Would you is it a situation where kind of like class size in an elementary school where the student teacher ratio if it's really high tends to be bad right you know would you would you rather have a would you rather work with a partner that has a lot of portfolio companies that you know she or he is in charge of or would you rather be working with a partner who uh, is working with a comparatively small number of portfolio companies I would lean a little bit more towards the second one, but I don't think either is right or wrong. I think it depends on the individual and the level of help that they are able to provide right. um, and what you're looking to get from them. Um, and I think the way that you can validate this is by talking to other um, other portfolio companies, which you know any VC that you probably want to take money from as part of their due diligence process is going to ask you for a customer list and is going to probably want to talk to many of your largest customers. And again, you probably shouldn't take money from them if they don't ask you that at some course of the due diligence. You should kind of flip the script and do the same thing to them. You should ask VCs to talk to two or three of their portfolio companies. And you should color what those port codes say um, with the fact that you know the VCs are going to give you the best and the brightest, the ones that like them the most, the ones for whom their advice has made the biggest difference, so on and so forth. But you should still talk to them and you should find out, you know, what is it like to work with, XYZ VC um, and this specific partner. And you should hopefully ask for referenceable you know, companies that have the same partner who's going to be your primary point of contact inside that VC fund. Right. And, and I think, that and I think that's a good way to check it out. And there's an, there's an extra layer of kicking the tires here, which is, you know, you might want to go onto, you know, any one of the different data aggregators that, you know, Accumulate information about uh, investors and who they invest in. Start, you know, all the rest. Um, you know, you might want to go out and find a couple of the companies that um, previously work with that uh, either individual, you know, investor, that partner at a firm, or the firm itself, where you know the company itself didn't work out. And you might want to find out from that founder um, or founder of that of that company that didn't work out. You know, hey, what was that experience like? Because mm-hmm. you know, was it a was it a situation where you know, uh, failure was taken sort of in stride and gracefully and respectfully, or was it a situation where you know they were really, uh, uh, 
you know, busting your chops about it the whole time and and mm-hmm. and making you not feel great about it. So, like all, all all of these things are really important to to evaluate. But um, but but Graham, you I know, th- and, and yeah, I go think on. That one of the you know other things, if you expect that this is not the last round you're going to raise, is how successful of the portco's been at raising the next round, mm. and what relationships does that um, partner or firm have at the next at the next stage. Um, and then how can you help me recruit and recruit and retain the best talent in my industry? And how can you help me develop important, you know, partnerships if that's going to be a part of your business model that will benefit me and bring in more, more clients? All right. So maybe, I'm, I'm, maybe how can you help with direct clients, but really how can you help with partnerships if that's going to be a part of your startup's business model? Well, now, now Graham, I'm going to put you on the spot because, Oh boy. Yeah. So, cause we've, we've said all this, all these are great rules of thumb, right? But I think that the, the question that I was asking is, and this is what I want to tease out of you, um, is, is at, you know, per stage, what are some of the things that people might want to, you know, look for in an investor. So let, let's start with oh, gotcha. let's start let's start with seed stage. Um, sure. So so at a at an early stage, as you're still working more on product development, you may want somebody who's better at and has more experience thinking through product development because that's more important in your business life cycle. As you get to like an early stage, again, I think that partnership, which is kind of where I left off the 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 questions before dividing this by stage uh, in my answer. Again, all of this may be important across all life cycles, but what's most important, I would guess somebody who can help with vision and product ideation and help you really find product market fit in the beginning, then somebody who can help you develop partnerships, and then somebody who can help you grow and scale both your team as well as your customer base. Mm -hmm. And those are probably different people. And hopefully you are able to aggregate them on your board or your advisory group as you go because you're always going to be iterating on a new business model or trying to develop a new customer segment. And it's always going to, it's probably always going to be important as long as partnerships are some part of your business model, then it's always going to be important to develop more partnerships. And once you get to that growth phase, of course, it's going to be important in a couple of different kind of stages to be able to have the right investor partners to take things to the next level that are about the size of your team and size of your customer base. But that's how I would think of it at a high level by stage, given just three stages of seed, early, and late. Seed right. meaning seed, early meaning A, maybe B, late meaning, you know, B plus. Right. Keeping in mind that like seed round, like your pre-seed and seed round is really from like, again, turning something, nothing into something. Uh, you know, Series A round is sort of like really dialing in, take, have, being able to buy the time necessary to dial in the product features to build a repeatable business. Um, you know, find a so, way to get customers scalably. Yep. get your metrics down. Yep, and then you know, Series B and later is is at least in an ideal case, you know, all about saying like, okay, well, for each, you know, for each uh, incremental dollar added to the business from. Uh, you know, from a fresh capital standpoint, we can expect to get, uh, you know, that same dollar plus a, you know, ideally a significant return, um, you know, out of it, right? So for each hundred dollars invested in the in the business, you know, we might expect to get a hundred and fifty or two hundred or even three hundred dollars out uh, in terms of uh, revenue, either in the short term or down the road. 
Um, so, you know, and then when it comes to finding inv- finding investment partners, specifically at late stage, I think it's, at least from my sort of understanding of things, it'll really depend on what your strategy is, right? If you're uh, if you're a really product-driven company and, and you are exclusively focused on growing your um, growing your revenue by uh, just getting more and more people involved in your product, you know you're going to want to find somebody with uh, great connections to uh, you know best-in-class marketers. Uh, if you're looking to develop a more expansive uh, uh, family of of products associated with your company, you know you might really want to find somebody who previously worked in say corporate development or M and A. Uh, to help you, you know, acquire the startups to build that portfolio of of products and features that you know you otherwise didn't want to build yourself, or or or, or you know couldn't build yourself, or didn't have time to build yourself, whatever, whatever. So yeah, I think that there's that there's a lot of stuff um, in there, and it varies by stage, uh, and it's ultimately it definitely varies by stage. What's what you're going to be looking for in your investor partners, which I think is as important as them. Looking for you. That may not be what it feels like from the way the process and sorting goes, um, but I think it's equally important for um, it's equally important for the company to like their investor as it is for the investor to like their company. Oh yeah, because you're going to be like whether you like it or not, you're going to be working together for you know probably up to a decade, up to a dec you know a decade or or in some cases more, especially if you're one of the really small population of companies that succeeds in going public, right? You know. It's it's not uncommon for uh, companies to retain, you know, some of their uh, biggest venture capital investors on their, on their board uh, long after they've gone public. Mm-hmm. Peter Thiel, for example, was one of some of the first money into Facebook or the first money into Facebook, and uh, it's my understanding that he's still on the board. Although, don't 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 quote me on that. I believe okay. he is. We won't. Okay. I should know this. Anyways, um, so Graham. This gets back into you know some of the steps, right? Which is like, you know, steps four and five around identifying investors and and doing the outreach. So, understanding that every investor is different, right? Every firm has its own sort of deal flow acquisition strategy. Every mm-hmm. individual angel investor has their own particular communication styles that they prefer, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know. One of the things that I keep seeing on Twitter, especially from entrepreneurs who are younger, haven't raised money from from venture uh, investors before, is this question of, well, like, you know, how do, how do I go out? Where where are you know where are they? Apart from you know all out on Sand Hill Road or showing up to demo days at at accelerator events, like where are the investors mm-hmm. and how do I get in touch with them? So I guess to to you know narrow it down into a question, which is like. What are some general rules of thumb entrepreneurs should keep in mind when reaching out to investors with the intent to pitch them on a potential uh, investment opportunity, e.g. investing in their own company? I think there's a lot of different things that are important there. Number one, you've got to go into this knowing that it's very likely you're going to be turned down most of the time, right? I mean, you know, especially as investing in companies like this becomes even more competitive. You know, it used to be a good rule of thumb that you're going to invest in probably somewhere between one in a hundred and one in a thousand companies that you see. Um, So that's like a 0.1% to a 1% success rate. Um, So first of all, I think, you know, you got to know that it's not for the faint of heart and that if you're going to go after this path, this path being 
selecting venture funding as a way you're going to take your business to the next level, you got to know that you probably need some pretty thick skin and you're going to hear no a lot more often than you're going to hear yes. And that's kind of just a, a rough experience for a lot of folks, I think. Um, so I think that's, you know, kind of step one in just preparing yourself for the process uh, mentally is be, be ready to be turned down. Um, general rules of thumb. Um, what about oh, the idea of uh, warm versus cold uh, outreach? Well, yeah, and I was just going to go there. Um, so if you're trying to reach out to investors, I think it's always good to try to get a warm introduction. So use LinkedIn and try to find who you have in common with me or with a member of our team, right? And see if that person can make an introduction. And obviously, if that's somebody that I know well or trust their opinion or uh, if it happens to be a CEO or founder or early team member at an existing Portco, that's even better. Um, and again, they can kind of validate some of that early feedback that we were talking about, about what's it like to work with us as well. Um, and, and when I'm saying things like us and we, by the way, I'm not necessarily just meaning cultivation. I'm kind of speaking from my knowledge from cultivation, but speaking about the industry. Yep. But, but you know, I mean, yeah, anytime you can get a warm introduction, um, I, I get cold emails and cold LinkedIn messages every day. Um, I try to go through those, but quite frankly, I get, you know, I'm not particularly important and I don't have the best deal flow in the world. Um but I still get way too much to read it all. So unless you happen to catch me on a good day where I happen to have gone through my email box or my LinkedIn super deep, um, which is not most days, then, um, you know, I'm going to take it a lot more seriously if I get it from somebody that I know who's either an earlier or later stage VC and says, hey, we passed on this because it wasn't stage appropriate or what we decided not to do it for this other reason. But I think this is good for you. Um, uh, or it's a Portco CEO of ours who says, hey, I know this uh, company, this earlier stage company. Um, I think you should talk to them and here's why. Those are going to be the intros that I, I mean, I'll schedule meetings with those people tomorrow, including if I have to cancel something else, probably maybe figuratively. Not well, I mean, but. so, so I guess here's, so we've, we've talked about, you know, preference for warm introductions. I think that that's generally the case. I think, I think anybody can intuit from, you know, being an operator in the business ecosystem that in general you want to it's always nice to work with friends, right? Or it's always nice to mm -hmm. work with friends of friends, um, you know, because that because at the end of the day, it's all about relationships. It's all about it's all a trust game at at the end of it, right? Yeah. Um, very rarely is it the case that you know people will go to a networking event, meet somebody out of the blue, and you know the next day sign a you know a, a partnership deal or sign a investment Term deal sheet, or, right. or whatever, right? Um, so that that all makes a lot of sense, but I, I have a, a nuanced question, an extra twist, which is, you know, are there any um, is there are there any etiquette points to keep in mind around reach about asking your existing investors if you have any for introductions to other investors. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, if you've got existing investors, then you should obviously, they probably have cultivated relationships with people who invest at both earlier and later stages or in other industries, but at the same stage. So yeah, I mean, I think you should absolutely ask them, who else do you know who might have interest in our deal? 
Um, I mean, that's a, probably a very common way, right? Because if we send an, uh, an introduction along to a Series B fund and we say, hey, you know, this is a portfolio company of ours. We've led their last round or two and we like them because X, Y, Z, we think they might be right for you. They're probably going to take that pretty seriously because we're a source of, uh, of trusted deal flow from, for them. And sure, they go to networking events too, as do I, but um, th- they're probably going to take that a lot more seriously um, coming from somebody in the, in the industry. Um, I think the other thing that everyone should do is the people who pass, um, especially if it's you seem like you've got a great company and you're just not stage appropriate for me, which usually means your traction isn't quite what I want to invest in. You should ask for other. Um, you should ask for introductions for the people who say no to investing in you, as long as they didn't uncover something crazy during due diligence or you have a personal conflict with them, um, which hopefully neither of those are the case. Then I think you should absolutely ask people who pass. Now, most times they're going to say, "Oh, let me think about it," or kind of you know kick the can down the road. But I've absolutely, at the same time as passing, made introductions to people who are probably appropriate for for you know a, a, a potential portfolio company who's not right for me or us. Right. It's like, oh, I, I sorry, I can't be helpful to you today. Uh, here's uh, somebody I know who who who's you know definitely you're definitely in their wheelhouse, and uh, look forward to working with you again. You know, uh, six, twelve, eighteen months down the road. Yeah, another thing that I would recommend is have um, have an investor update list, uh, oh, yeah. and you can absolutely either ask potential investors, even if they're passing. Hey, I send out a you know once a month or once a quarter, and it should be somewhere between those frequencies, uh, no more than once a month, no less than once a quarter. Um, can I add you to my investor update list, um, or or a colleague or analyst if it's a fund? to my update list. Uh, and I think you should absolutely run that. You shouldn't spend more than an hour per month or quarter writing that report and they should be able to read it and digest what's new in your business within about five minutes. Um, and that may lead to them investing when you are stage appropriate for them. Um, a lot of times we've known companies far longer than it would just take to do due diligence and get a deal through investment committee because they we met them before they were stage appropriate, but eventually their growth turned them into a stage appropriate business for us to invest in. So yeah, I definitely but- recommend running an investment update list and asking anyone who passes um, if uh, you can add them and if they know anybody else who you should talk to. Well, so so continuing on this theme of of you know uh, viewing the venture investment and you know ecosystem as as a network of sorts, right? You know, a, a set of ties uh, of relationships between investment firms and founders and their companies. It's it's kind of a tangled mess when you sort of look at it from uh, any any sort of uh, uh, angle or or from any sort of like level of zoom zooming out that uh, let's sort of appreciate the whole thing um what what do you think about companies reaching out and pitching to investors who've backed their direct competitors in the yeah, past yeah really i think it's a mixed bag I mean, first of all, I would say that some investors just have a hard and fast rule that if they're in something that's uh, seen as too competitive, either by them or that company, then they just won't do it. 
Right. Um, and uh, I certainly respect that because um, it can get a little conflict of interesty, right? If I came across a deal to send either a partnership or a potential customer, which one of the two of my portfolio companies that compete with one another do I send it to? Right. Um, for for example, um, you know, so you know, I think part of it is many funds won't do that. Period. Um, if the fund will, do you want them to? Um, that's probably also a double-edged sword. Right. Uh, well, maybe the first thing wasn't a double-edged sword, but that's probably a double-edged sword. Um, if that company is still in their portfolio, if I was the founder, I would have a lot of questions about if you come across the next stage investor or the next right partnership deal, which one of us are you going to send it to if both companies are still in the portfolio? But at the same time, you've probably seen the pitfalls uh, of trying to grow and learned a lot of potentially valuable lessons, which could be conveyed upon me, uh, that you um, that you could convey to me and save me a lot of time, money, and effort. Learn your money, learning those lessons along the way, because again, you could be a, a guide of sorts because you've been there, done that, seen that through the lens of your other prior portfolio company. Right. So I think this is it's where a you case get case by in, case basis. Yeah, like, yeah. And you I, should and, or shouldn't take that on. And on that note, you know, I think a lot of it ends up sort of being uh, to your point, a case by case basis based on um, a set of pretty specific operational details, right? So, you know, um, would you mm-hmm. want to go out and uh, pitch to an investor who uh, is a sh- who is a you know state major stakeholder in a competitor who is more or less the same stage as you? Pro- probably not. That, that probably doesn't, not. Doesn't seem smart. Um, you know, because you also might be giving up if you do have secret sauce. You might be giving up your secret sauce. You know, yeah. any investor is going to ask, "What's your secret sauce?" And then, uh, and then they might trade you know, some secret sauce. Well, chances are they didn't sign an NDA. If it's not a highly, you know, if it's not a highly technical or deep tech kind of company, they're, they're not going to have signed an NDA. Now, hopefully, they don't just take and give your pitch deck uh, if you give it to them to over to the other port co. If it you know kind of divulges too much, yeah, it'd be pretty unscrupulous. But, but but even things that you say in the pitch obviously could be turned over. I mean, I've certainly been in pitches which have been stopped because hey, this is too close to something that we're already invested in, and we don't want to jeopardize you. Right, and, and that's mostly. I mean, hey, we would love to you know uh, learn all uh, about what you're working right, on. <laughs> do, do a brain do a brain dump and say, hey, tell me everything you've learned in your time and with the money you've spent on this. And now I'm going to take it over across the street and parrot it to my portfolio company who will benefit from it. But that's not really a very appropriate um, use of our time and capital in the right. industry, and that's not how we want our portfolio companies to win. Right. Of course. Well, and and to the point of all this being a, ultimately a reputation game, you never want to have the reputation of being the uh, the firm that uh, lear, learns learns some secrets and uh, snitches to their existing portfolio companies. I think also right. And and again, just to be clear, when I'm saying we and us, there, I'm not absolutely talking yeah. For the record, you're not talking about. I'm talking about our industry. Yes. Uh, Graham and I, Graham and I are VCs in particular. Graham and I are speaking from the omniscient, uh, abstract, third-person perspective of uh, at least me. Back when I was a journalist, I speak for all journalism. 
and all tech media and all the rest. Right. And Graham speaks for all of venture capital and all of you know so, something family which they may and not be personal happy investment. About, in but, oh well. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> they, they'll deal. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, if there's a comp- if there's a if there's an investor who you know their firm might still be a shareholder um, because you know they uh, you know they were a seed investor in XYZ company which is now worth a bajillion dollars. Uh, they're still even though that company might still be private. If you're a seed stage company um, uh, who's taking a, another bite at that same apple and you know trying to do something one better than what the uh, prior portfolio company has has done. If there's a sufficient amount of space, you know, in terms of uh, time and uh, maybe even physical distance, uh, it might be worth, uh, I don't know, throwing spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks. Um, let's see, Graham. Um, if you don't mind, I'd like to take one more off of your bonus question list, even though we're probably, uh, you know, getting to a pretty oh, good Oh, yeah, yeah, we got here. a couple. Of, we got, yeah, we have time for definitely one or one or more, one or two bonus questions. So... so so, uh, should startups always seek a new investor to lead a round, or are they, or are there benefits to raising an inside round? What are the benefits, if any? I think we should think, first explain what an inside round is. Right. So, an inside round is when you are raising most, or you know, all essentially of the capital from existing investors. Is there anything you want to add to that? No. Relatively simple definition. No. So, sounds good. Uh, so, so that means you're not bringing new people onto the cap table. Um, certainly not in a major way. You may be adjusting the cap table depending upon people's level of participation, uh, e.g. pro rata, etc. You can refer to a prior episode, which was one of the most confusing episodes we've ever had, but that talks in great depth about the very complex terms of round pro rata and some other things like that. But in any case, uh, oh, was, was that the episode that was super confusing? Was it pro rata or was it the? Uh, oh, it was pro rata. Also, you yeah. and I have recorded more than one super confusing episode. So, well, that, that's that's a fair point. Um, but in any case, um, so it depends. I think which is going to be the answer to almost everything in this episode and all of these questions. But it depends. There are definitely advantages of uh, having an inside round, and um, one of the big advantages is you don't have to go usually. Depends on your investors, but you don't have to go through all of the same due diligence, um, which is not to say that you don't do ongoing due diligence on on that your investors don't do due diligence when they're going to reinvest in you. It's just if we've gotten to know you and built a relationship with you, then we don't have to go back and do everything new from square one as we do when we meet a new potential portfolio company. Um, so that definitely there's a lot of time that can be saved. And often the terms, negotiation, et cetera, can kind of be done in a much more uh, friendly is not right, not not exactly the right word, but there can be a lot more latitude in certain circumstances around the way the terms for the round are generated. You're saying you you can play a little bit more fast and loose. Not 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 in an undisciplined way, but like not in an undisciplined way. Um, But but yeah, you know. And the other thing that I've seen happen is sometimes you get offered a term sheet from an outside firm. And uh, for one reason or another, that's not the right offer for the company. So we come back and offer an inside round instead. We'll often derive a lot of the terms, not always and not everything, but 
from what you were offered by an outside third party, assuming we're confident that's a bona fide, you know, kind of thing. So I think the main thing is usually those inside rounds move faster. That's the primary thing that is that is good about doing an inside round. Um, in general, if you're going to step up the valuation uh, substantially, um, as an existing investor, we would probably like to see someone new leading that round. Right. So set so said another way. Um, it is very, it is very likely an inside round while faster, while simpler, while more straightforward and while had in a more, uh, cordial way, uh, and while playing to, to use your phrase from earlier, not undisciplined in the way it's done, but maybe playing a little fast and loose, generally the terms probably won't be quite as high. So if you are looking for just that, you know, high ticket, uh, get the highest post money, pre-money or post money, whatever you want to publish. Um, if you're going to publish details of it, then chances are you will need to bring in a new investor, but I don't think you always need to bring in a new investor to lead at each successive round. We've definitely had examples uh, in in that case of we, I am speaking specifically of cultivation, where we've led multiple rounds in a row, at least as many as three Mm. um, uh, in in the same company. Um, And so, you know, uh, and and that's a company that uh, at least one company in which that's happened has, you know, led to a successful exit. Hey, congrats. Thank you. And it allows you to defend your position and all the the rest. Uh, uh, Graham, I have... I do have I do have one last question. Keeping in mind that we are going long and it's it's uh, getting late, and we all have you know we we all have stuff to do. Um, me most uh, most importantly, turning on my air conditioning so that I can uh, sleep. Uh, Very important. One of the but I think that this actually should have probably been the thing that we led off this conversation with, and that's why I want to tack it on to the end with acknowledgement that it should have been there from the start, which is. Um, which is this idea of general solicitation. So I'm going to let you weigh in, but but here's my my non sure. my non legal expert opinion or understanding of what general solicitation is. Right. So more often than not, especially say before the rise of you know new reg uh, regulation uh, A and regulation CF offerings, CF. which yep. We've, uh, you know, Graham and I have talked about on Fully Vested in a, a relatively recent episode. Um, it used to be the case that most, if not all, of the fundraising that startups did were under was under a regulation was under a, an exemption uh, from Regulation D, which is a part of the Securities Act of uh, I don't know some some decade in the 1930s or That's right, one of them. Anyways. It's it's a rule that basically says that you cannot sell securities to the general public. That you are that if you're going to advertise the sale of securities, it should only be to um, sophisticated investors, which is often, at least from the from a regulatory perspective, just translated to uh, sufficiently wealthy investors. Um, but there's other criteria, you know, that that aren't specifically uh, based around. Um, uh, assets under management, personal net worth, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then, anyways, that's that's a that's a big no no, right? So, for example, mm-hmm. uh, it would have been would have not been great for Mark Zuckerberg to, as a, hypothetically, 
um, you know, post on his uh, Facebook personal Facebook profile or certainly on the profile page of uh, Facebook, you know, the Facebook page on Facebook, that Facebook is raising a Series B round. Right, that's probably that would be a big no-no in the eyes of the Securities and Exchange Commission. But um, you know, Graham, now that there's a more, even though that would have been a great investment, that's right, absolutely would have been. But again, from what I understand, well, I think any any understanding of Series B to growing where it is today, I think we can all say that uh, uh, unless there was some really really special carve-outs in there in favor of Facebook, I think everybody would have made out like bandits. But um, what, from your perspective, you know, on the other side of the table, like, what are some things that, that you encourage founders to keep in mind when it comes to um, promoting the, the fact that they're raising money if they're going to promote it at all? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, outside of the things we've already talked about, obviously they need to be talking and giving their pitches to accredited investors yep. um, or qualified purchasers, which is a slightly different flavor of this. Just the means same richer. Thing. <laughs> More often Generally, than yes. Um, you know, uh, or talking to funds that have limited partners that are, you know, uh, investors in those types of offerings. Um, and again, you know, Jason, you kind of touched upon this in in what you said and and in asking the question, but this obviously is not talking about crowdfunding kinds of things. Just to be right. clear. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that obviously they need to be prepared with things like a pitch deck, but more importantly to to the answer of this question, they need to think about who they're talking to. And I guess the simple explanation is just be be careful about who you talk to and understand that they are accredited investors or qualified purchasers and or run a run a fund that that meets those those similar criteria. All right, well, Graham, this has been great. Uh, we are going to post. There were a couple of questions that we didn't get a chance to get to. Uh, God knows we could probably record full episodes on them. We will include those questions in the show notes. Um, this is going to be a uh, slightly different formatted show notes than usual, but uh, bear with us. Um, Graham, do you have any other things to add before we uh, sign off on this uh, fine, fair, and very warm Monday evening at the end of August, two thousand twenty-one? No, I don't think so. I think it's been uh, been an interesting and good discussion, and uh, excited for uh, for whatever we take as the the next question about VC and tech investing. Absolutely. Well, everybody, uh, stay tuned for the next episode. You can find the fully vested podcast at fullyvested.co. You can follow us on Twitter at fullyvestedcast. You can find us on LinkedIn at I forget what the URL is, but you can search for us on LinkedIn. Uh, and wherever else you get your uh, fine social media, Facebook. Sure, yeah. Wherever else you get your fine social media products, uh, chances are we're on that on that platform. Feel free to follow us there. Uh, without further ado, Graham, I wish you good night and uh, listeners, happy raising. And if you think that either Graham or I can be helpful, uh, feel free to reach out. You'll find a way. <laughs>